So welcome to the Kieran Yoga Podcast. Today I am with Talia Sutra, founder of the yoga school Love and All is Coming. Um, I've seen Talia online a while back and started to follow her and I really liked her stuff. So I wanted, although she's not Ashtanga, of course, we don't always have Ashtanga people on. I wanted to, to come on and, uh, and welcome Talia to the podcast. Hi, Adam. Thank you. Hi. Thank you for having me. Yes, you're one of the exceptions of uh, people that get through the net of non-Ashtanga people, and it's lo lovely to have you, um, you know. And you're, you know, and 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 to that end, your stuff is really refreshing, um, and is you know varied and different. And um, yeah, I really kind of am curious to find out more about you. So you know, the obvious place to start: where did you start? How did your journey of yoga begin? Because I know it's an interesting one from your childhood. Yeah, yeah, uh, it began with my mom. So when my mom. Uh was diagnosed with lymphoma for the first time. She began practicing yoga. I was about six years old. Um, and that was my first introduction to it. Although my whole life, my uh, I grew up in a very spiritual home. My parents are really beautiful, lovely people who both come from uh, families that have a deep connection to ritual and practice in their own way, obviously not related to uh, mm. what I now practice and teach. But um, of course, in a large, in a kind of like zoomed out way, it does, but not in the details. Uh, so I've always had a deep connection to ritual and prayer and connecting with uh, the heart, the divine, and when my mom started practicing yoga, then it was also just seeing asanas every day it just mm. became a normal thing. So that was my first introduction to yoga. And um, I would say my interest was, it wasn't too strong <laughs> in, in terms of like my mom, she would always try and get me to be involved with what she's doing. But I wasn't too interested. I, I thought it was a little <laughs> bit um, slow and boring. And I preferred to, uh, I preferred, I was very physical, but I preferred doing the gymnastics that I was doing at the time. Mm. Um, oh, well, did, and did you I, mention where you were at this time? Where, where, yeah. Where's home? Yeah. So I was born in Tiberias, which is a very small city. Uh, in northern Israel. My dad was the mayor oh. there for uh, nearly 15 years. So before I was born. And when I was born, I was already like well established. That's what my dad was doing. So my family was very well known. And that's the reality that I was born into. So as soon as I can remember myself, it was just a very social upbringing. There were always people around everyone knew me it seemed that everyone knew me and my family um my parents were very active people and uh everyone when my mom was sick also everyone knew about it you know it was discussed and it was everyone so she also became an activist so when she was sick also another thing that she did besides you know hatha yoga is like a karma yogi she <laughs> set up organizations to help people with cancer especially women and even as a really sick person you know going through chemo and being so weak and depleted and losing her hair everything she would go around visiting uh cancer patients in hospitals and bring them flowers and cheer them up and teach them yogic techniques so it was really impressive and i learned mm. a lot from her like that was really that was really the most important thing that I learned from a young age that whatever happens to us, and this is what my mom always shared with us too, as, as a mother, even to a six-year-old, she really always spoke to me like, it doesn't matter what happens, it's how we respond. It doesn't matter what's going on. Like I didn't choose to be sick and I, you know, no one chooses that, but I can choose how I respond. And she never lost her beauty or sense of humor and her connection with people. And even though it was very public, it was a very public way, obviously relatively, but it's a public way to be so sick. And she handled it so beautifully. And obviously, uh, you know, she, she had it 
two different times, but she defeated the cancer both times and she's in remission now for uh, many years. Uh, so she's, she's Brilliant. thriving yeah. and still, you know, she teaches, she's always been, uh, she started out as a physical education teacher when she was 20 and then she went on to with yoga and uh, continue, she still teach, essentially teaches different modalities of physical education, but she's really inspired by teaching people to use their bodies, use mm. their bodies to generate well-being. And I learned that from her from a young age. Uh, she still does this now. She's 63. Um, and every day she has a practice <laughs> that she does. And she like, you know, motivates my dad and motivates essentially the whole neighborhood <laughs> to, to do, uh, to get up and to breathe, you know, uh, to move, to stretch. And she teaches yoga and Pilates and so many different kinds of movements. She's always learning too, to, to inspire other people. When did you move to New York then? Because I, I thought you were brought up in New York, right? What, yeah. How did that so transpire? <laughs> my dad uh, essentially had option. It all had to do with my dad's work, line of work. So he didn't want to stay in politics anymore uh, for obvious reasons. I think for, like I said, very God-loving people, politics just doesn't go together. My dad really wanted to make an impact for people, and I think he did. Uh, both of my parents are like these kind of uh, karma yogis, you could say. They take action to help other people. But uh, the next step for him would be to go and work at a bigger place, maybe in Jerusalem or something else. And it's knowing what he did, it's, it's the po political world is a very corrupt place, no matter where you are in the world. And he just didn't want that. So we mm. took on, uh, instead, we, uh, uh, he agreed to take on uh, uh, a kind of uh, government, like a diplomatic mission to go abroad. And we decided, or he got the chance to go to New York, and it was supposed to be for a few years, and maybe we go somewhere else. Uh, but we ended up in New York for seven years as a family, um, and I was just starting fifth grade. So I was maybe 10, uh, something like that. That's when I moved to New York, and I stayed there until I was 17. Hmm. So that part of my schooling... Uh, pretty like major part was mm. was in New York, mm. and then I moved back to Israel with my family because it was never like they made a permanent move. It was this part of his work, and then he ended it, and he wanted to come back. Um, and I ended up going to the American International School in Israel, so I was still in this kind of American education bubble. I didn't mm. know many Israelis. And hmm. so it was a bit, you know, like people are always confused. It's like, you don't, where are you from? You know, especially when they meet my family, because <laughs> everyone is like much more, sounds more Israeli. Um, mm. So I guess it, it really depends. But the way that I grew up, yeah, it's, it's a bit confusing. Um, but I immediately went afterwards after my, I finished my uh, high school levels uh in israel but in an american system i went back to new york immediately so yeah. uh, i left so i i wasn't with my family anymore and i stayed in new york um until i was about 27 or 28 so for a while yeah 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 okay well um you know as long as you've got warmer clothes um you're, I suppose you're okay. What were you studying at the time? Arts, some some kind of arts, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. I was doing yeah. fine arts. So I was right. in the School of Visual Arts and I was doing fine arts. I only did it for a year. I dropped out and started teaching yoga, essentially. Right, uh, right. Yeah. I suppose we yeah. need to talk a bit about yoga. So, uh, you know, what was your, uh, <laughs> you, you were uh, into dance and, and uh, gymnastics and then dance, right? And then, you know, yeah. you were, was it, was it um, interested in Dharma Mitra? Did you get into yoga through Dharma Mitra? Is that right? No, no, no. Uh, okay. no. Make better listening to the podcast. <laughs> okay, fine. Great, great, great. <laughs> no, uh, yeah. so I was studying at School of Visual Arts. I was doing fine arts uh, and I lived on 8th Street in St. Mark's 
and every day I would pass by, you know, I would like walk up towards uh, the subway and uh, I'd see like a line of people, like a huge line. And I couldn't understand why every day at the same time, there's like a line around the block. So I started, you know, just to ask people what's going on. And they said, this is like just a yoga studio. <laughs> I was so confused because when I used to go with my mom to yoga classes, like no one was there. It was like three people. And th this was like a major street in New York City and so many people, young people trying to get in. Mm. So I was like very intrigued. And I decided to just one day go inside, you know, and like try it. Um, and this is the studio called Yoga to the People. It's not there anymore, but uh, it was like such a, I think a moment, like a moment in New York and it was a beautiful place. It was like a sanctuary for a lot of people. Uh, so it was uh, on St. Mark's, four floors, four floors of huge loft spaces. And um, you have to imagine this staircase filled with people, maybe uh, in certain times of the day, like uh, 100 people inside the building, in the stairway, trying to get into one of the studios. And right. inside the studio, teachers calling, okay, uh, we're moving into eights. And that means you're moving into eight mats per row. Okay, we're moving into 10 because they're trying <sighs> to fill as many people as possible in these rooms, sometimes huh. up to 80 people per room. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, there were so many people because the classes were essentially free. You don't have to pay. And yeah. Um, yeah. if people pay, it could thought... be anything. I thought that right. I got confused because I heard the story about the lines, and then I thought, "Oh, something that was Dharma Meacher's place." I think maybe glitching the podcast or something, and it kind of came back. <laughs> right. So it was. Right. I taught on um, yoga for the people in Vancouver, which was a donation-based yeah. studio. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. In northern Vancouver, um, and uh, yeah, you'd, you'd have loads of people in the class, and then you get to the charity box at the end, and you kind of think, "Oh, <laughs> that's not very good." <laughs> Oftentimes. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. And, and you st you started teaching at that studio yourself is that how your your journey transpired yeah yes yeah so i yeah. i started to practice there and very quickly i uh did the training that they had that they offered there right. and i mm -hmm. uh, started teaching immediately i dropped out of school to continue teaching and mm. um uh then they they had two types of studios. They had these uh, vinyasa studios where they were donation based, and then they also had the hot yoga studios. Uh, so essentially, I was I was practicing immediately when I started practicing there. I immediate, immediately also started practicing the hot yoga, which is for people who don't know, it's a set sequence of twenty six postures and two breathing exercises. It's known as Bikram yoga. Bikram is the man, Bikram Chowdhury. And um, that's his style of yoga. It originates from an 84 uh, posture sequence from Vishnu Ghosh. Most people don't know mm. him. He's the younger brother of Paramahansa Yogananda. Uh, mm. So it's a Kolkata-based, very interesting Kolkata-based mm. sequence that most people just don't know. Um, anyway, I started practicing this very intensely right away. And then I was just told to start teaching it. Uh, and I started teaching it. There was no like uh, official training or something like this. I was just told to teach and I started to teach this style of practice. And that's really what my, uh, the basis of, you know, I guess uh, what I've been teaching for the past almost 15 years. It's still based on this uh, gauche style, the 26, the 84. Mm. Uh, the way so you've that I've added practice. more postures. No, no, Otherwise, I don't add. It's not mine. No, There's... I mean not just the not just the uh, the twenty four because that would be a bit limiting. So you've expanded out towards the eighty six a bit more. So there's 26 postures in the yeah. uh, original practice that most people know. And what mm. most people don't know about this Bikram world is that there is actually, it would be interesting for Ashtangis because you guys could appreciate how there's like, oh, there's a surprise. Here's a new new postures to learn. So there is actually uh, uh, a kind of by teacher invitation. So when a teacher sees a student, let's say in this style of yoga long enough, they'll invite you to the advanced practice. And it's the set sequence of 84 postures 
they're done in a specific order. So most people don't know that. Uh, but that's what I practiced for many, many years, along with my friends in New York. And what I teach and what I practice is based on this classic 84 posture um, sequence from the ghost tradition. That is really interesting. I didn't honestly know that there was the expansive uh, 80. I knew it was Bishu Ghosh who, who, um, and Chowdhury that, that, you know, there was a relationship there, but I didn't know that. That's real. Yeah, well, that's really helpful, actually. Well, I don't know helpful because I don't practice the sequence, but very interesting nevertheless. Um, how, um, how did your teaching expand from there, I suppose? Because you, you, nowadays, you, you know, I, you travel all, the, all over the world teaching workshops. Um, have you, how have you expanded from there or how, you know, can you say anything about how your teachings grown or, or what's motivated you? You have this uh, this tagline, love is all is coming. And that doesn't immediately resonate with the Bikram message for, for outsiders looking in at least, you know? Sure. So, I mean, hmm. I just want to say I was very blessed that even though the, you know, you know, too, uh, from I'm sure Ashtangis can also relate to people judging the practice based on certain history with the teachers, the main teachers. And I think that is something that needs to be separated because the practice itself uh, is not necessarily contaminated by the people <laughs> who are, who have flaws, the people uh, who have brought it into a certain light and helped to popularize it or even invent it in some ways. Uh, they can hold, they are human and they can hold certain flaws and those flaws can come to light when working, especially with so many people, but the practice itself is not contaminated. Um, and I think it's important to make that distinction. So uh, the I was lucky because I wasn't teaching in Bikram studios and there was a big lawsuit around that time some people listening might remember or know that was with the school that I was teaching for. So I was teaching uh, for a school that wasn't a Bikram studio and Bikram had a problem with it because Greg Gamuccio, who was the owner was previously like his right hand man. And essentially there's a big drama there. doesn't matter. Uh, but he opened his own studios because it, it's like a can of worms, like starting to talk about this, but he opened his own studios, Bikram Chowdhury sued. Um, and anyway, he lost the, the lawsuit uh, that said that you could copyright a sequence of postures. He lost the, the case. So then everyone was able to, to teach, to continue teaching this. Anyway, I think your question was how I expanded the teaching. Um, the, I, I was teaching a lot. So I was probably from the moment I started about 21 years old um, until hmm. I was 27, I probably never took a day off unless the studios were closed because it was Christmas or a holiday. I never took a day off. I taught probably five classes a day on average, on average. So I would start at like 6 a.m. teaching the first class and end uh, maybe like a uh, 10 p.m. And I loved it. This is what I wanted to do. I was like thrilled. This was my dream and I was doing it. I was so happy. I couldn't concentrate on anything else. And I was just so, so happy to be living my absolute dream. So I didn't know at the time that there, I wasn't trying to do anything else. I just have to say mm. that. Like I wasn't trying to make something or I was just teaching many, many classes because I was also, I had a lot of friends in, in between the Bikram world and the non-Bikram world. Uh, many people started to notice my practice. I, I was in New York City. New York City is a kind of intense place. And I was in New York, people started to notice that my practice is very strong, very strong practice. And I think Ashtangis could relate to this, like, because it's a set sequence and it's a community. So even though I wasn't teaching for Bikram, Bikram people eventually get to know the practitioners that are strong, especially because there were also championships and it's a whole other thing. Uh, and a lot of people don't know this, but 
their their war uh, asana championships taking place in the U.S. They didn't originate in the U.S. It's actually quite an Indian thing, and they uh, yeah, yeah. yeah in India it's a huge thing, and they're very proud. Still of now, it. Yeah, uh, yeah, 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 still. I follow yeah. so many of my Instagram friends from India are like amazing asana champions, and anyway, I was like the least. I still am. I'm not like act like naturally in my nature competitive. If I get intense about something, it's because I just like love it so much and I can't stop doing it. Uh, I'm not competitive by nature. I'm too sensitive in some ways for that. And I'm also not social enough. I don't really like to be around a lot of people. But my good friend, Jared McCann, he was, you know, an asana champion and he it just was really encouraging me. He's like, please just do it. Just do it as a joke. Just do it as a joke, you know? And I was like, fine. I'm not going to like create like a, a a stubborn identity against it because I think that that is a problem, you know? Like when you're, when someone is like, come on, just do it. It will be fun. We'll do it together. I didn't want to say no out of like some kind of uh, judgment or, you know, I don't know. So I did it. I did do the championships. I met even more. Bikram people, more teachers, fantastic teachers like Mary Jarvis, who is, you know, very well known in that world. Um, I learned a lot. I started even going out and and speaking about yoga. Somehow I found myself speaking about yoga on national TV in in, in the U.S. doing live television. <laughs> like it's like how did all of this happen? And that one thing led to another then there was social media my brother was telling me to get social media at the time so I downloaded Instagram and uh, it, it kind of got the ball rolling a combination of both having a strong practice very strong practice many uh, uh, intensive community in New York City um, and also because of the championships that I did once, but I won, I didn't mean to do it or, or I was like absolutely shocked that it happened. But because I got a certain title in this world, they started putting me out there in the world, like pushing me out in magazines and, and uh, TV shows to talk about yoga. Uh, huh. But it wasn't, I never would have taken that action. So everywhere that, any place I got to is because someone kind of asked me or like suggested mm. like my friend, Jared, or later uh, it was my, uh, another student who became my friend, Nusha, who said, uh, yeah, you need to do not only social media, I need to do retreats. And let me introduce you to this guy. He's going to be your manager. He's going to make sure that um, you're well represented. Right. So people mm. came into my life and started suggesting what I should do. It wasn't mm, necessarily mm. immediately my, uh, right. something that I was mm. able to do by myself. Um, basically, social media gave me, I, I've always been an artistic person and I love to write and I uh, love to create images. And that gave me the opportunity to, to do that. So I was writing a lot. And one of the things that I was writing is love and all is coming. Obviously, I adjusted practice and all is coming a little bit. I'm so sorry uh, for the uh, Ashtanga. Yes, you did actually, didn't you? Yeah, that's a point. Uh, yeah, yeah. I didn't think about uh, Sorry that. if it's yeah. offensive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, for some of the more religious Ashtangis. Uh, but uh, that, that actually, I was just writing that. I was writing that a lot um, on social media and it captured a lot of people's mm. Uh, mm. minds or hearts immediately. Mm. It was mm. like one of those things that people could immediately like get and it, it kind of grew. It grew and people started using it and making it a hashtag and it grew. And then when I decided to uh, to teach workshops internationally and I was invited to come places then I would use that as the name of uh of what I was teaching and I mm. guess I know I'm, I know I'm kind of going on tangents I just want to answer all the questions that you answer that you asked you asked uh what I was teaching so in the classic 84 I mean there is 
a lot in there. There's every type of asana you can imagine. A lot of overlapping, actually, with the uh, yeah. asanas that you I see, practice. I see that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but uh, there were a lot of backbending asanas, and the, my friends that I was practicing with would always uh, complain about their pain. And I said, you shouldn't have pain. Actually, there should be no pain when you do this. Uh, and that's where my focus on backbending technique uh, evolved. It's, it started there from observing my friends who were these amazing, like incredible practitioners. And for some reason, their backbending in the process and afterwards would cause them pain. And I was very interested in then beginning to observe what I was doing, what, what other people were doing, what the differences were, and how I could help uh, mm. teach teach what I know, what works for mm. me at least, you know, mm. and see if it helps others. And over the years, I started developing um, essentially a method that I teach and that I have been teaching for probably around eight years now. Um, and it's I've seen the results have been amazing to see because so many of my students would tell me, I do this, I have no pain. I have no pain. Wow, like that's amazing. And that that is where I started to specialize. I started to specialize in backbending workshops um, and I would take it in different places. And then in 2018, I decided to focus my time more on developing a 200 hour training and and that's what I've been doing ever since. It took a while mm. to really figure out what, how I wanted to do it and what I was going to focus on and then uh, building, building it from the ground up. But now I've been, you know, offering them for several years uh, and that, that was the natural progression, but it was never foreseen by me. Like I when my friends used to ask me to like, even like make a video, <laughs> like they were way mm. more ahead of the time. My friend would hold a phone and say like, okay, explain how to do, uh, you know, standing uh, bow pulling pose. And I'd say, oh my God, no, turn, like turn the camera off. I was so shy and it was so hard for me to, to, I would, I would have never imagined doing what I do now because it's so public and there's so much public speaking and, I was painfully like a shy person and it was so intense to mm. even to like even imagine when when it was suggested to me uh to share in that way I I found it really really hard to like speak to the camera. I didn't mind if someone was kind of filming me in a way that I was doing something and it was more detached and you know but like looking and speaking like this it was um it was really really hard for me. Um, so it's been a, it's been a, a long, a beautiful process, but not something that I consciously ever, um, attempted to do. It happened by itself mm. organically. But you enjoy it now, right? I've enjoyed yeah. it yeah, from yeah. the beginning. Right. Yeah. What it's, changed? It's, I mean, what made you more public facing? Right? How, how does that evolve then? Cause I mean, you have a great, um, social media presence, let's say. Yeah. 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 No, I think the biggest thing was um, when I started teaching, I was 21. I was very, um, I didn't think that I could do it. I didn't think that I could stand up and teach. And the wonderful thing about the, about this training <laughs> at yoga to the people was that you don't uh, teach your trainees, like in a normal, most trainings, mm. you teach your trainees. What they do is they make you go and teach a class. Like I told you all those people in the stairway, like waiting to get in, like they just go, okay, now you go and teach that class to like 60 people and you've never taught a class before. So it was so painfully hard and it was a lot of tough love with them. It's like, you just do it, you know? Um, and they, they don't like kind of cuddle you. They, they say, whatever comes out, it's fine. Like we trust you, you got this. You're just going to go teach. And, you know, it was like heart, <laughs> the heart rate and like sweating, but cold, hot all at the same time. It was like awful. But I think because 
I, I did it. Uh, and I, then I did it again and I did it again and I did it again after a year of doing that, of like just seeing so many people and doing it despite the fear, because the fear mm. was so real. And so mm. it wasn't innate to me, even, even though, like I said, I grew up in like a very public family, my dad and my mom and dad gave speeches and were social people. I just wasn't like them. And I never thought I was like them. That's why I was like a painter and I was a dancer because I didn't want to speak. And I found it difficult to speak to people. Um, but something in the love of the practice changed that for me. And I fought really hard to get up and do it. I didn't enjoy it at first. Not in the process. Afterwards, I did. Mm, I felt yeah, yeah. such so much love and like light and what a blessing but going to teach and trying to teach the class was hard because i didn't feel worthy and i think a lot of people feel that way i loved the practice and the knowledge this knowledge so much i never felt worthy but then one thing that one of my first teachers told me really stuck and she said why are you making it about yourself you know, it's like, it's not about you. And I said, you're right. That really helped me because I need logic sometimes. And that, that really helped me because I said, it's not about me. I'm, I'm making this whole story about Talia, you know, and what she's going through and like, who cares? You know, it's like, just let's teach downward facing dog. You know, it's not, let's help this person yeah. breathe. And it's mm. not about me. And that changed my whole life. Actually, it was sometimes it takes a long time. Sometimes when we have an issue, it takes a very long time to get through the process, to move through the fear, through the anxiety, through the patterns that are so set in. And sometimes, and maybe it takes two of them together, it's like just the light turns on. And once the mm. light, once you turn the light on, the light is on. And for me, that was that. It's like, it's not about me. I don't care. I don't care if someone thinks I'm not good enough. Okay. Like yeah. I probably, I, I'm probably not ever going to be, and it's fine. I think that's the way a lot of people get, I, I reckon that must be the way a lot of people get around it. Cause that's exactly the same way I got around it. I just couldn't have stood up and been me. It was like, I was passing on something that helped me. I just kept that in my mind. It's really helped you just try and pass that on and it'll help other people. And it's you know, exactly the same. Yeah. Right. So I'm assuming then there's a lot of people listening that you know, have the same default mechanism um, along similar lines. And what are your challenges been with the postures? Because I heard another podcast, you you mentioning a certain arm balance or, or something at Dharamitra's uh, class. And, uh, and he came along and told you just to do it. And that seemed to work yeah. as well. You seem to, you yeah. seem to respond well to a, uh, to simple phrases, let's say. <laughs> they, you know, if only everyone everyone could be taught and changed in their mindset so easily. Um, and uh, yeah, but you know, I mean, like true. people will see you online and they will see you and they will think, well, you know, she's never struggled in a posture in her life. You know, I mean, you've got this incredible back bend. You also got a good uh, strength at the front front body. Um, you know, must have struggled a lot. Of course, we've all struggled in that stuff. Um, you know what? You know, people would love to know your struggles. I'm sure, just to just to make you human. <laughs> So uh, just to be clear, right, uh, I, I'm 35 years old and I started having a very intense physical discipline at four years old. I, mm. uh, you know, it, it, my life has, has had discipline as long as I can remember. Uh, and when I did gymnastics, it was my mom first took me to a ballet class and I didn't like it because everyone was just running around with ribbons and I wanted something very serious to do. So uh, when I did gymnastics, it was very intense training. And then I transitioned uh, to classical ballet and I did classical ballet. I went to a special school where I did my academic work in four hours and the rest of the day I was dancing and I did this my whole life. Okay. So just to be mm. clear, uh, I didn't start uh, physical discipline later in my life. I started very early on. I also uh, took on other things as a child. When I was 11 years old, I became vegetarian without anyone else in my family doing so. I had very specific 
uh, viewpoints and I lived a very specific life from uh, a child. So obviously because of intense physical training from mm -hmm. uh, childhood, I already started yoga asana practice from a place that is very established. I had uh, a wealth of body consciousness, uh, strength, flexibility, uh, balance. I was trained for it. I was trained to be a professional dancer. Like I decided not to do it. It doesn't matter. But the point is, that's what I was trained for. So mm. uh, yeah, I, it's important disclaimer. to say that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, really, no, it, yeah, I think it is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what you see is the result of a lifetime, a lifetime mm, of work. Mm, and I, mm. I gave it all, all of my attention. Uh, now, when I came into asana, some things were very difficult for me. Uh, for example, I never knew, I was never trained to uh, uh, find spinal flexion. And that means uh, there aren't a mm. lot of, most, most people don't even know what spinal flexions are because there aren't a lot of... Uh, it, even in most yoga asana sequences, there aren't a lot of head to knee moments, right? So we're doing a lot of extensions, spinal extensions, mm. even in forward folds. Like in Ashtanga, you know, you'll take the chin to the sh uh, to the, yeah, the chin, like that. right? <laughs> so they, we teach, uh, most people know, Ashtangis or even people who go to vinyasa classes, they'll, the gaze is forwards and we're mostly working on the a chin to shin connection that's fine but there is another type of spinal movement that's very important and it's very prevalent in the gauche system uh, which is forehead to knee and mm. rounding the rounding of the spine deep active that was rounding. an ashtanga i have to say that is an ashtanga that, um, and i teach like that um and more recently it's often been this elongated spine, but this is, there's a precedent. If you look at Krishnamacharya, obviously Patabi Joyce, there's a rounding of the spine as well. So there was that flexion. Just want to make sure that anyone who's not in Ashtanga realizes that's there as well. This, you know, the, the original flexion. Of in the, the original, what postures do you, I'm just really curious, like what postures are there in the primary series? That Janu would have the spine? Okay. Janu, head to knee, Janu, knee. Shisha yeah, head. John, yeah, we have, yeah, make, we have make, that. Right, makes sense, doesn't it? Right, even um, yeah, but, has the padding gustasana, the way that you do it, coming forward. Um, I would teach it more like that. That you would come yeah, but forward the over way the, leg the teachers, or... but the way that the teachers teach it is this way. Well, some teachers, not me. Right. Okay, not you. Just because some teachers teach it like so, that. I mean, many teachers will teach it with the chin coming forward, even Paschimottanasana with the chin coming forward. Right. But. This is, um, you know, it's a, it, it's not the way I teach it, and it's not an effective method. So, you know, I mean, the spine, I don't see the spine working that effectively if you keep pulling forward your lower back, and yeah, it's uh, the spine is the spine is curves, and you need to you need to respect the curves, and and you need the flexion as much as the extension. All you need is this mobility of the spine. We're not looking for even we've been walking around with a polar paras. You know, you're looking for mobility of the spine, not just you know elongating all the time. So, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So, Defend the so, corner of Ashtanga a little bit. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I, Sorry, no carry on. I think it's <laughs> I think it's so interesting because a posture like Janushirtasana, it's interesting because it's in the name because you have for uh, head yes. to knee in the name, but then you know uh, in some lineages that isn't always it is by you, but it isn't always instructed that way or understood that way. Anyway, no, in the yeah, yeah. in the Ghosh hmm. tradition, it is, and there are several maybe five different instances uh, in the 26 series where the student is asked to curl, to round their spine and place the forehead on the knee. I found that incredibly challenging, like incredibly oh. challenging. Uh, I didn't know how to do that. I wasn't trained for that. And just to show mm. that if, if we are presented with something that is new, that we've never done before, that's going to, to be a lot more of a struggle. Uh, other things that I struggled with and um, are still very difficult for me are any kind of sh very extended, like a like a, a handstand, a handstand with with a, a one long line. Right, that's going right. to be much more challenging for someone like me because I have um, a lot of freedom in my body and to control that level of freedom, it takes a lot more effort 
you know? So when something has the greater than mobility mm-hmm. uh, in the joints, especially in my spine, the greater the mobility in the joints, the more intense effort it takes to control it. Because if there is less movement in the joint, then it's easier. When there is a lot of movement in the joint, then we need a lot of effort to contain, to, to create something and to hold it in a straight line. So those things have were definitely challenging for me, but I, I think I enjoy, um, I think I do enjoy working on something that's difficult. You know, so for me, that's never been an issue yeah. because I no, I, de- really I don't like think it. work has been an issue for you. Yeah, you de- you definitely <laughs> you definitely seem committed. Um, and n- along those lines, I mean, you're also quite a um an advocate of the vegan diet, right? And that's a big part of your message, I think. Without being proselytizing, is that you know, the vegan diet works for you, and, and you're very committed to that. Um, how do you want to say anything about that, or how you came to that, or how that fits well, in with I- your view on yoga? I, I don't really think of it as a diet and I don't, right. uh, and I think that's really probably the biggest, uh, I know it's just a word, but for me, it's mm. never been about, uh, like I said, I, I, I became, there wasn't the word vegan when I was, when I was, uh, 11, it didn't exist. So I was, I knew myself as a vegetarian, but of course, um, I never had, my family just never had even like milk product so I never had that in my life and from my young age I also was just naturally recoiled at the sight or smell of eggs so I was vegan essentially just wasn't the war didn't exist for it uh it's not something that I would say for me is is a diet so again I'm 35 11 I don't know how long it's been like 24 years I guess uh of of living life like this, um, I I think I I can verify for myself, but I think it's also verifiable by others. Like people can see that I'm a very strong person, um, mm. and thankfully, I'm very healthy. Uh, but mm. again, I think that works. What works for me may not work for anyone else, and and for me, it's never again. It's not a diet. It's just a very natural um, perception. It's my perception. I just like how for a lot of people, they don't see dogs or cats and want to milk them or eat them. I see the same for the other animals. Like, it's just like that for me. I just don't see that as being food. I don't see other animals and think that I should eat them. Um, Does it fit in with traditional yogic teachings? Yes. But also I think in terms of how it is that we're it is definitely suggested that from what i understand that we reduce the level of suffering uh that we cause so Mm. reducing making an effort to reduce the suffering and to also take in less what's called tamasic Tamasic foods in terms of diet, because you mentioned the word diet. For me, it's not about diet. It's just mm. the perception. It's how I see the world. And I could just never do it. Even as a kid, mm. when my parents would give me certain foods, I really struggled with eating it. And it didn't fit in with how I wanted to, mm. to just how I saw the world. And I loved animals. I was a quieter mm. kid, you know. I I found solace with animals. I loved animals. I suppose I'll rephrase the question slightly because obviously um, the Himsa diet suggests a vegetarian diet in traditional Indian culture and yoga. That's that's obviously clear, and even I know that obviously. But um, how does it relate to your teaching? I mean, I know they say, for example, David and Sharon at Jivan Mukti are quite strongly um, there, kind of suggesting this to the students. How, you know, obviously it's a belief that's dear to your heart. How do you square that when you have a whole bunch of people want to teach a training and you're in Tuscany with all the prosciutto and uh, you know all this stuff, you know, around? I mean, you see people, you know, kind of doing these things. You know, what's your how do you keep your mouth shut or do you do you suggest any? Oh, no. Uh, Our trainings, before people even uh, sign up to our training, they know that it's a fully vegan training. So there there is no other option. So if you want other options, it's probably not the right fit to come to a Love and All is Coming training. So before you even sign up, it'll say, you know, this is a fully vegan training. Uh, We that's 
it's definitely a tenant. I don't uh, try and uh, preach diet to anyone, but in the training, it is a vegan training. It's there's also no smoking, no alcohol. Uh, there's a code of conduct that we have within our manual that everyone agrees to before coming. So nothing is a surprise. Um, but yeah, we, we follow certain rules. We go to sleep at a certain time. We follow silence in the mornings. Um, and we do all of this based on both my personal experiences and practices that have helped me and that I find useful for most humans. Um, and even simple things, trainees have to make their beds. <laughs> you know, they have to make their bed in the morning. Yeah. So do, we do follow. Check, do you check rules. on them? I don't. But I can, I can imagine you going around with a clipboard saying, you know, no, go back. We, we do have <laughs> an assistant for that. Well, I, I realise I'm running out of time just chatting to you, really, but it's been quite enjoyable. What about, I mean, I'm looking at other questions I've got, and I've got many for you. But what about motherhood? Because I know you've become a mother a few years ago. Many people uh, struggle with with keeping up a practice during motherhood. The changes that that makes on the, on the female body are obvious. Um, how has it affected you, and, and how do you fit in practice now, coping? I know your son's very young, so how, how does this all work out around yeah. yoga now? I have two kids. I, my son is almost six and my daughter is uh, one and almost three months. So uh, I never wanted kids. It was never a part of uh, one. One thing I really knew in life was I was never going to have kids. Also, because I was trained to be a dancer, I was always like clear to me. I was like my body, you know, like nothing's getting in the way. Like I'm not I'm not doing this. I'm not getting married and I'm not. <laughs> like having a family. So that was also definitely a surprise. Uh, but it, I don't think I'm very resistant when like something that is something comes in my life with joy. I really do t tend to open up to it. And when I met Ezra, things changed for me that were different. Like I left my life in New York. I moved to Jerusalem. Like, you know, like why on earth am I even doing this? I left a very awesome and exciting life that I love. Like I said, I love teaching all the classes <laughs> and and being a part of my community and it's beginning to expand and grow. But I left all of it in a second because I felt something. I felt something inside that was very clear. It was very clear and I left. I left it. I said, it's fine. I moved to uh, to Jerusalem. It was a very strange couple of years in terms of what I was doing with my life, I kind of retired for two years. I stopped teaching from teaching all the time. I almost never taught unless I was filming classes. Uh, it just wasn't happening. Um, and then I, uh, and then we had kids and of course life changes, you know, life is going to change whether someone has kids or not. Uh, and our bodies will change whether we have kids or not. We don't have to be a woman that's having kids <laughs> to know this. So like, hopefully we all know that our bodies will change mm. uh, and are changing second by second. It's just the fact. Uh, so even if I chose not to have kids, I would still be faced with change and the change in my body. I decided to have kids because I felt deeply inside of me that this was the right thing, that this is something that I wanted to do. Uh, and uh, of course, practice changes. And luckily, I'm interested in more than just asana practice and always have been. I think also I can attribute this to years of discipline, physical discipline prior to asana practice as well. So very early on, I was also interest, very much interested in philosophy and studying mm. and uh, chanting. I spent a lot of my time studying Sanskrit, chanting the sutras. I'm interested. There's so much more that is there, but I also involve my kids. I involve my kids in a lot of my uh, practice. And of course it changes, but I spent so many years being so disciplined that, uh, you know, my body is, doesn't necessarily require so much uh, asana. Uh, I, I am able to access my, my body has access to asana without much effort to be completely just honest here. Mm. Uh, my, my body has access to asana without necessarily constant physical practice. I don't need mm. to do a lot. Mm. 
but of course was it hard to, to adapt from a really disciplined kind of practice and lifestyle to, to what you have now and your mother with two kids did you is there not any struggles really. around that no, no. uh no <laughs> i mean the, the struggle was the struggle was in perception but uh, you have mm. time when you're pregnant so pregnancy, that's what more luckily, i would mean how how did it yeah mentally it takes yeah. it takes 10 it takes 10 months you have like 10 months to begin to process all of these changes things are going to happen and i think because i also as a child was like i'm not going to have kids because i know what they do i'm not disillusioned they're going to really mess things up and i knew about this i wasn't like i didn't live in this fantasy where like i was going to have kids i wasn't i didn't even want kids so then when it happened i was very grounded and i think i was ready to uh to give that to surrender what i knew before like i did it when i was ready if I wasn't, if I felt like struggle and I wouldn't have done it, I would have said, no, I'm not ready to let go of my practices. Then it would be a struggle because I would resent my choice. But I mm. made the choice. I made the choice when I was at a peaceful place of surrendering to that. I was, so I wasn't resentful. I'm not resentful because I did it at the right time and I did it when I wanted to. So there was no resentment. Uh, and also I live still a very disciplined life and I enjoy introducing discipline to my children, meaning the love of certain practices and living life a certain way. And so the practice is not just your posture that you're doing or, or the 90 minutes that you set up for your practice. I see it in everything I do. So in the way, like I said, the the way I arrange my home and the way that I take care of my home and the way that uh, we speak to each other in my home um, and the standard that I hold up for our relationships, that is a practice and it's a, pract it's a, it's a major practice. So we're taking it out of just, it's, it, it's a practice when I say it is, and we're expanding it to life itself. So that's the potential of yoga. Yoga can be a practice, it can be a goal, and it can also be an embodiment and a, a, a lived experience. Mm, 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 mm. And I think, I think uh, this is what can happen over time, is that we see that we can establish it in everything we do. It doesn't matter. The, you can take any action you want. And the way that it's done internally is what makes it conscious what makes it a part of the practice mm, mm. um well it sounds like the only struggle has really been flexion spinal flexion <laughs> everything else has flowed quite nicely um no um you know it's, it's wonderful to hear um what you know what is, what is your biggest accomplishment what do you think well, could you say one thing that is you know, apart from the, the children, obviously, you have to say the children, but anything else in your teaching or your, you know, your life that you think that you're really, you're really pleased, pleased with? I think, you know, the fact that I was, that I was and am able to continue to uh, offer about three trainings a year. Each one of them is about two or sometimes three weeks long and uh, and and be a, a present parent. Um, the fact that I'm able to live the life, a life that I love, with uh, uh, with a partner that I love, and uh, and never feel that there is anything that I'm neglecting in my own development. I'm. I continue to study with my teachers. I every day I make time for my own personal studies, for my practices, for my children, um, and for my students and for the trainings that I lead. So I think all of that is something that I feel uh, gives me peace because I feel fulfilled. I feel that every day I am doing what I'm uh, meant to do, but mostly I'm just grateful. I'm just grateful that that life has aligned itself in a certain way and that I was receptive to it. And there have been many more struggles than just spinal flexions, but I don't choose necessarily to uh, dwell on them mm. because like mm. I said before, it's not about me. It's mm. not about me. 
And that's not where I dwell about what happened to mm. me and how I'm, you know, suffering is a choice because mm. there are always challenges in my life. Always. There are mm. always challenges in our life, but suffering mm. is an internal condition that can be solved. And I can choose how I choose to see something is up to me. So I don't choose, even if there are challenges happening, I don't choose to yeah. be a victim. I don't choose to be resentful. I want to use them to meet myself and to see what I'm capable of. And I am going to draw that back to the way that my, my mom faced her challenges. Uh, and when doctors told her she had, uh, you know, a few months to live, she even then never, ever lost sight of the joy of living. And I have that in me, luckily. Uh, who knows? Maybe it's something that is from uh, just this lifetime with my mom. Maybe it's from even further, deep, deeper in. But either way, I'm connected to something beautiful, obviously. I'm connected to something good and beautiful and truthful. And that's what I stay connected to. Not, not uh, uh, the narratives about myself and my challenges. So. I'm connected to a power that is greater than that. I feel that very much. And I think that, that that's what fuels, that's what allows me to stay um, focused and centered and, and, mm. and, my mind fo and allow my mind and heart to focus on things that are really bigger than just me. me. Yeah, yeah. Well, just for the record, I wasn't one minute saying that you haven't had suffering in life. We all have suffering in life, haven't we? But, you, know, you, know, you, have, you know, you do have a wonderful um, presence and I haven't met you in person, but, you know, I see what you're doing and, you know, everything looks just so nice. And, you know, and then the retreats look really, really well done and, and really joyful. And, you know, obviously you've got a lovely practice and, and, yeah, it looks like things are flowing nicely for you. Well, how would you see yourself in the next 10 years? Is there anything, any, any goals that you've got? I, I just don't know. I'm I'm right, always so right. surprised because 10 years yeah. ago, I would have never imagined being here. So I just never know. I mm. tend to just focus on what I'm doing now and we'll see where it goes. I could have never imagined this life that I'm living now. I never would have, never in a million years. I would I wouldn't even believe it, that I would be living in Tel Aviv and have like two kids I would be like I, I would be sick if you told me that to be honest I'd be like just so concerned I would be so concerned yeah, so concerned for yourself that's funny yeah yeah about, there's like, a whole other happened? story about yeah about how you got together with, with your partner is a whole other story that's a great podcast I can't remember the lady who who interviewed you on that on the on the relationship podcast but that was a really good story if you've got time to listen to Talia's introduction to to her husband um that's a uh, wonderful and uh, serendipitous kind of events um anyway um what was i going to say last thing i think i've kind of been kind of circling around in my mind is like you've got a lot of integrity and you hold yourself to a very high standards and i can see that just from talking to you you know um how do you square that and keep that knowing that you know along the lines of yoga and money like how do you deal with that aspect of the of what is a kind of a, something which is a, definitely a vocation for you but it's also a profession right yeah you're doing it professionally um and and also the idolation that you must face you know you're very popular on, on social media and you know obviously with your students as well they you know that that kind of quote unquote potential power that you have you know how, how do you keep your line with with these challenges or influences that will potential influences upon you well last question in turn in terms yeah in terms of the first part of your question um mm. I think it's important to, uh, when taking on, when living, when living a life that's centered around the practice, then we have to know, okay, what kind of person am I? Because there are guidelines. If you're looking for traditional guidelines, there are traditional guidelines. So, you know, a householder uh, mm. would have uh, different, are, are given different goals, life goals traditionally. And, uh, and it's actually a responsibility of, of a householder, right, to, to provide for their family. And there is no problem providing for a family and, and setting up a house and also 
practicing and teaching yoga. And we've seen this, you know, historically and also uh, can see it simply from from tradition, from traditional teachings that are are really it's really amazing how prevalent they are even now to look at so if we're looking for example at the traditional four goals of life for a householder you'll see that it's very simple there are certain things that a person uh, needs to fulfill in their lifetime so i think that for me that has really helped also working with uh, uh, teachers asking questions that come up for me in terms of ethics because that does come up for me like what's ethical and what isn't um mm. and and that does shift as perception changes but at the end of the day i always come back to am i making a choice out of uh fear am i making a choice uh a decision uh out of external judgments or influences and if the answer is yes then i don't make that decision or i try to slow down what i'm doing uh i think it takes discernment. Discernment is something that is developed with time uh, in a practice. And when you do practice for a long time, and uh, this is something that naturally happens because it's hard to discern. Sometimes it seems like, oh, it should be easy to discern between the right and the wrong, but it isn't. It, sometimes it's mm. very hard. And uh, the, the thing that makes it most difficult is if we're very impressionable and if we uh, are likely to uh, seek uh, uh, certain validation from people around us. Luckily, I don't really, like I said, over time, it took years. So obviously this is not something that I just was born with, but over many years of practice, I, because I've made it less about Talia, the person, and more about what it is that I, that I wanted to share, the yoga, the practice, then less and less also, I feel like I need to please other people or uh, to other people's validation. And I think when that happens, then things are becoming more clear. And when I do have a doubt, I have a teacher that I, or teachers that I can consult with on what it is that maybe I'm having a dilemma with. But there is no, I, it, the, the way that I see it, there is no problem. There is no problem living a life of a yogi and also having a family and being a householder and making sure that kids are provided for and that everyone is good. They're set up for whatever they need to do. Like I don't see a conflict as long as, again, things are done consciously and ethically. I care about ethics. I do the best that I can to, mm. to minimize the amount of harm and uh, suffering that we cause. Uh, but again, it's obviously, it's, it's going to be so relative because that people are going to have different opinions and standards on, on what mm. that is. So, uh, you have reminded me of the second part of the question. I don't remember what it was. No, I think that was, you know, I think that's pretty much answered it. I don't doubt for a minute that you have utter integrity or you try your best. I mean, you can't always win it, you know, kind of like get it right every time, you know, but, um, yeah, you know. but I mean, I, I guess for, for people, cause I'm sure you have a lot of people watching who are teachers and maybe starting out. And I think it can be really confusing. And I think it's important to know your value because I definitely did it. You know, when I was starting out and I was teaching mm -hmm. all those classes, mm -hmm. I was being paid, I was being paid maybe $30 a class for years and years. That's what I, right. uh, that's what I was right. being paid and I was living mm -hmm. in the city. So it was, it was really hard. I didn't have anything. It was really, really hard for me, uh, but financially, but I was so happy. And because it was just me, it was fine, but that wouldn't work. That kind of lifestyle wouldn't work with kids and, and sending kids to school and hiring help when we need it. And obviously all of the things that, that are needed when you have a family, that kind of lifestyle doesn't work. So obviously things, changed for me it changed organically but also i was open to it and i think that a person has to be receptive to that so when people came in and helped me because my friends set me up with all types of people who knew things about finance and social media that i didn't know and those people helped me along the way mm, i was open to right. receive help when someone said you know what you should speak to this person they could help you my reaction wasn't, oh, no, 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 I don't need help, or I'm not interested in a good contract. I didn't say that. I said, oh, okay, 
yeah, I'll, I'll hear what they have to say. Why not? You know, and, and that took me places because I was always open. <laughs> so when someone suggested something, I was open to learning more. And I think that's always a good attitude to have. And not, and if you're a teacher and, and you want to also make a living out of this, I think you should know that's, that's perfectly fine. And it's a good thing. You should be able to have uh, spiritual development as well as physical material development. You should be well-established. A yogi who's a householder should be well-established enough that they don't have to worry. Their consciousness isn't in survival mode. You shouldn't have to mm. worry about if you want to develop as a teacher, you need to have your foundations very strong. And that includes your material uh, security. And there's nothing uh, wrong with that. And I think it's good to understand your value as a teacher and uh, and maybe get help if you struggle with that, like I did, get help from people who are professionals and they can help you uh, uh, present yourself or create contracts that work to ensure that you are set up long-term for success in, in, uh, in, uh, in the business side of things. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's an excellent end note to, to uh, finish the interview with and a really helpful for many people, I think. Uh, yeah. Very inspiring. Um, well, all that remains is me to say thank you very much for your time, Talia. It's been a pleasure to, to finally chat with you. And I know that everyone's going to find this podcast really interesting. So, Thanks again from everyone, from all of us. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you so much, Adam.